What's going on? It's Chuck G from Three Deeper Cuts Podcast, your lifestyle magazine for the practicing surgical pathologist. Every week we bring you something to think about, something to read, or something to listen to. Three Deeper Cuts is brought to you by Formal and Fix Paraffin Embedded Tissue. Emphasis on the formal and... Because without the high exposure to 10% buffered neutral formalin that I received during my four years of residency in St. Louis, I wouldn't be able to think about half of the things that I put up here on the podcast and on 3 Deeper Cuts Publishing. So if you're not a pathologist and you're listening right now, thank you and welcome. A couple of announcements for today. What's going on in the life? You know, I'm blessed. Turned 40 recently. Took a couple weeks off, reconnecting with the family, spent some quality time with my son. No complaints. Went out west. Uh, this was probably the highlight of the trip, was just showing my son some of the old neighborhoods that, old neighborhoods that I used to hang around in, in San Diego. I moved out there, let's see, in 20, gosh, 2011, I think. Did an intern year. Uh, didn't know anybody. Basically just packed up, joined the Navy, started a new life. And um, I just remember there was this little breakfast joint in the neighborhood of South Park. And I don't know how I had read about it, but I would just show up there almost every Sunday uh, or Saturday, just depending on my schedule. And I would just kick it. And it was one of those old school you know, uh, diner type of places, real small, kind of a hippie joint. And there's like this old lady, I think she was the owner. She, she would just, she would just walk outside and jam with people. It was just a really positive vibe. And the way it was like one of those old timey breakfast restaurants where the bar is a semi circle so that you, you have to talk to each other, you know, like you're just staring at each other, it just encourages normal human interaction. The only diner slash cafe that I found in my wanderings that fit that uh, that setup was Gerda's German Bakery in Omaha, Nebraska. And I would go there from time to time. I just love, I generally love old 24-hour diners. I just think it's like the coolest aspect of Americana culture. The older, the better. And that was back when people used to just talk to each other without iPhones and uh perfect strangers just sharing a cup of coffee and an interesting conversation there's also a lot of crazy stuff on the walls uh of like movies and actors and actresses it was i just i was i always dig places like that what else uh went up to solana beach another one of my favorite hangouts i actually was part of a bicycle group and we would meet up at revolution bike shop on in solana beach and and some of those rides are really intense uh we're talking like 40 to 50 miles up and down the hills of rancho santa fe i would bounce around to different cycling clubs uh, there was one in carlsbad i would go to there was one in east county i would go to plus and then also with my flips in mira mesa manila mesa we do some rides based out of there I'd go to east county and stuff uh, so yeah, it'd been a long time since I had just, you know, enjoyed the scenery. I forgot how beautiful it is down there. So we didn't venture too far out of those two locations. Uh, but yeah, just simple. Sometimes the simplest vacations are the best, just renting a little cottage Airbnb and just going for walks and enjoying the fresh air. And that's what we did. What else is going on? Uh, CPP. So I joined a cohort uh, to help grow the podcast on X. So if you're if you're unaware, uh, X.com, formerly t- Twitter, it's essentially the only platform left for truly free speech, where you're not suppressed uh, from uh, the things that you say. And it's interesting because you see some really wild stuff on there, man. Like. Uh, and I realized I had been so insulated from racism and sexism and all of these isms, you know, and I, I'm against those things. You know, I like, I like to think that I'm not racist or not very racist. I mean, some would argue that everyone's a little bit racist, uh, depending on where you grew up, where you come from and, uh, your background. But, uh, yeah, you see some wild stuff on there, 
But I think you got to just combat combat bad ideas with good ideas, uh, in my opinion. I, I'm not, I, I think we've already started to see what, what cancel culture and suppression culture uh, has turned American society into. It's made people hate each other, and we're kind of at this crossroads where, uh, you know, there may not be any going back from this. Uh, the, the country is just so divided. I mean, I hope there is, but just, I mean, historically speaking, I don't, I don't know that you can be this divided on fundamental issues of uh, traditionalism versus um, the progressivist woke camp. Uh, it, things have just gotten so messy and the internet has accelerated all of that. So X, uh, I don't know. I'm not a very big account on X. So my perception is that they just, they just suppress everyone. But, uh, the way that, I mean, I'm only at 400 followers and the email list is still pretty small. So I, I find it to be a fantastic, just networking platform to meet like-minded people. So I'll give you an example. Like just a lot of people that, are in the workforce, have families, they're on X doing the exact same thing that I am, you know, growing a newsletter and a podcast. And it's just nice to have people to bounce ideas off of. And then you also learn other things about people. Like, for example, I, I don't know about you guys or gals. I, I used to always find it difficult to find people, especially within medicine, who don't really like to drink that much. I've never been a big drinker. I will drink, you know, a glass of whiskey, maybe once every six months or so, but I've never, never been a big drinker. And from a social standpoint, you kind of get, I don't know, everything, and it's not just medicine, it's more so in the corporate world, but everything just revolves around unhealthy stuff, like getting drunk at these corporate dinners or these group dinners. But a lot of the friends that I've made on X are genuinely interested in being healthy parents and uh, minimizing all of their alcohol consumption. Some people are. Some people have gone zero alcohol for a full a full year. Other people's are more like me, and it's more like once a quarter or something. But like I'm at the age. I mean, I'm 40 now. I've I I can't remember a time in the last 10 years where I I drank even like half a beer and then felt better about it the next day. There's maybe a handful of times, maybe like a wedding or something. But yeah, I generally 100% of the time feel terrible and I regret the decision. So this is just simply having the peer pressure for healthy lifestyles. There's also a lot of really jacked people on there and they're cool. Like you can just talk to them and talk about fitness tips. So you're an average of the five people you hang around with the most. So if you can't find five role models in your day job, which unfortunately that tends to be the case in medicine um, because people just have different values than I do. Um, so if you can't find those people in real life, then you look to the internet and, uh, I've been very, I've had just a very positive experience on X. So I will continue growing the podcast via X. In fact, I'm starting to post full length episodes on there. So I think I had been doing it intermittently, but now I've started to get my workflow together. And so I'm going to be doing, yeah, posting it, YouTube X, Apple podcasts and Spotify, and then the usual Substack in the form of a little audio newsletter. So that's where we're going forward. Okay. What else? All right. This is from cap today, generative AI from education to corner cases. I'll just read you some, uh, some highlights. This is an interesting topic. So what is generative artificial intelligence? How can it be used in pathology? What it stands for? Why the excitement? So this is featuring, uh, this is written by Devin Snedden, uh, interviewing Bobby Pritt, MD, Scott Anderson, MD, Ajit Singh, PhD of Stanford and Artiman Ventures. Uh, okay. Ajit Singh, what, is, what has been the, what, why has the excitement for generative AI picked up in the past two years? Ajit Singh uh, says, interest in the AI space as applied to healthcare has been around forever, and within healthcare, it's been in the areas of diagnostics and therapy selection, more recently drug discovery and clinical trials. In the early days of AI in healthcare uh, in 1968, the first applications were in the selection of the right antibiotics. So what changed in recent decades? First, the amount of data in the public domain exploded thanks to the likes of Google 
and interoperability. Second, computational power became inexpensive. Everything that was not possible in the self-learning systems became possible because of these two reasons. A few things are still not possible. While there are enough data, there are not enough data with corner cases, and in medicine, it's about the corner cases. Generative AI helps us solve that problem via data augmentation. It helps create additional data from which to learn. It helps predict what kind of data there could be lurking around the proverbial corners. If there is such a thing as holy grail in AI, it is not that AI works, it's that AI works in the corner cases. All right, so they're talking about non-traditional diagnoses. So I'm not going to read the whole article to you, but I would I would recommend you check out Generative AI from Education to Corner Cases. I think it's a really uh, good topic to familiarize with in the trenches of community practice in a hospital built on an ancient Indian burial ground. So now we're going to transition to the main theme of this week's podcast, which is post office. The first commercially successful novel by the novelist Charles and poet Charles Bukowski, an L.A.-based writer and just all-around savage. little background about Bukowski, born in 1920 in Andernach, Germany, to an American soldier father and a German mother. So his father stuck around Germany for a couple years after meeting his mother. They had him brought him to the United States at age three, and he was raised in, raised in Los Angeles, and he lived there for the next 50 years. Uh, that's not, well, he, he traveled a, a good amount during that time, and he published his first story in 1944 when he was 24 years old, began re- writing poetry at 35. So I just think that the story of this writer is just fantastic. He's, I'm obsessed with this writer right now, and probably will for, be for the next couple of years. It so he's one of those authors similar to Cormac McCarthy. I, I, I don't want to like insult him by saying that either one of the authors. I love both of them, so it's apples and oranges. But the underlying theme of basically like a working person who writes on the side. I love that, and it comes out in the writing because there's no pretense when you. It's like short sentences, easy to understand paragraphs, no jargon, no big words, and it's funny. Like the characters and the dialogue are just hilarious. So this, uh, this was, I mean, if, uh, last week's episode, I talked to you about a book by Robert Heinlein and even areas of that book. It was, it was a funny book. The dialogue was good, uh, but there were still areas. And for an ADD person like me, I, I just drift in and out if the book is too complicated. Bukowski is not like that. Cormac McCarthy is not like that. And I think it's because they're just regular working people that had this burning desire to write. And Bukowski, so the book Post Office is, is kind of, it's built around a alter ego of his. So the last name is Chinaski. So I think the name is Henry Chinaski. So he's this, uh, <laughs> he's this alter ego of Bukowski. And by the way, like I, I'm a fan of the writing. I'm not a fan of the alcoholism and and the whoring. Uh, you know, this is intended to be a marginally family friendly podcast, but the writing is just so good that like I, I have to I have to sh- tell you about this book because it's awesome. All right. So, anyways, I think the only relevant detail is that Charles Bukowski left. So he he had a pretty rough childhood. I, I think he was beat up pretty bad during uh, his. So he had a depression era father laid off, money struggles, this and that. It was beaten up pretty bad. Had really bad acne, socially awkward in high school, kind of a loner, uh, and uh, became a pretty serious alcoholic for most of his life. And for a period of 10 years, he stopped writing and just drifted around the American South, taking odd jobs here and there, uh, living like hand to mouth. And... Uh, I think at one point in there, he was hospitalized for a bleeding gastric ulcer, which was a wake-up call that his drinking was getting out of control. So he uh, continued to drink, but just not as much, and uh, healed his ulcer, and and then realized that he needs to um, drink less and write more in, if he's going to survive. So, and 
And I think this book came out in 1971. It was his first novel. And I'm just going to read you the excerpts from this book that stood out to me. So, all right, page 13, chapter one. It began as a mistake. It was Christmas season, and I learned from the drunk up the hill who died, who did the trick every Christmas, that they would hire damn near anybody. And so I went, and the next thing I knew, I had this leather sack on my back and was hiking around at my leisure. What a job, I thought. Soft. They only gave you a block or two, and if you're And if you managed to finish, the regular carrier would give you another block to carry, or maybe you'd go back in and the soup would give you another. But you just took your time and shoved those Xmas cards in the slots. I think it was my second day as a Christmas temp that this big woman came out and walked around me as I delivered letters. What I mean was, what I mean by big was that, all right, we'll just skip the rest of that, uh, (laughs) <laughs> this is against kind of crass. Uh, okay, let's skip ahead. So he's starting this job out at the post office. And in those days, it was, um, in those days, uh, he was just figuring out that the postman was basically an all-around stud. They would just deliver mail and meet women all day. Let's skip ahead, page 27. Uh, so he's talking about his... Uh, Uh, So the vehicle is in. Then the dashboard light went out. I couldn't read the clipboard. I had no idea where I was. Without the clipboard, I was like a man lost in the desert. But the luck wasn't all bad yet. I had two boxes of matches, and before 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 I made for each new pickup box, I would light a match, memorize the directions, and drive on. For once, I had outwitted adversity that Johnstone up there in the sky, looking down, watching me. Then I took a corner, leaped out to unload the box, and when I got back, the clipboard was gone. Johnstone in the sky, have mercy. I was lost in the dark and the rain. Was I some kind of idiot, actually? Did I make things happen to myself? It was possible. It was possible that I was subnormal. That I was lucky just to be alive. The clipboard had been wired to the dashboard. I figured it must have flown out of the truck on the last sharp turn. I got out of the truck with my pants rolled up around my knees and started wading through a foot of water. It was dark. I'd never find the goddamn thing. Okay, skip ahead. Driving on in, the water rose higher and higher. I noticed, stalled, and abandoned all cars around. I noticed stalled and abandoned cars all around. Too bad. All I wanted was to get in that chair with that glass of scotch in my hand and watch Betty's... Uh, <laughs> let's just give it a head. A lot of, a lot of this... Uh, it's, just, it's awesome to read, but it's going to sound nasty if I say so. I'm just giving you a, a teaser. And maybe this is the wrong way to do the podcast, but whatever. Okay, so uh, so he's dating this girl named Betty. Uh, this is when they're like young together, uh, and she's kind of uh, she's a bombshell. Um, so he's in this postal truck. I noticed that the water was rising above the floorboards, whirling around my shoes, but I kept driving. Only three blocks to go. Then the truck stopped. Oh, oh shit! I sat there and tried to kick it over. It started once. It's then stalled. Then it wouldn't respond. I sat there looking at the water. It must have been two feet deep. What was I supposed to do? Sit there until they sent a rescue squad? What did the postal manual say? Where was it? I had never known anybody who had seen one. Balls. I locked the truck, put the ignition keys in my pocket, and stepped into the water nearly up to my waist and began wading towards West Garage. It was still raining. Suddenly the water rose for another three or four inches. I had been walking across the lawn, and I stepped off the curbing. The truck was parked on somebody's front lawn. For a moment, I thought that swimming might be faster. Then I thought, no, that would look ridiculous. I made it to the garage and walked up to the dispatcher. There I was, wet as wet as could get, and he looked at me. I threw him the truck keys and the ignition keys. Then I wrote on a piece of paper, 3435 Mount View Place, your truck's at this address. Go get it. You mean you left it out there? I mean, I left it out there. I walked over, punched out, and then stripped to my shorts and stood in front of the heater. I hung my clothes over the heater. Then I looked across the room 
There by another heater stood Tom Moto in his shorts. We both laughed. It's hell, isn't it? Unbelievable. Do you think the stone planned it? The stone is their boss. Hell yes. He even made it rain. Do you think it stalled out there? Sure. I did too. Listen, baby. My car is 12 years old. You've got a new one. I'm sure I'm stalled out there. How about a push to get me started? And then they uh, skip ahead. I tried mine without any hope. There was some action from the battery, some spark, though feeble. I pumped the gas, hit it again. It started up. I really let it roar. Victory! I warmed it good. Then I backed up and began to push Moto's new car. I pushed him for a mile. The thing wouldn't even fart. I pushed him into a garage, left him there, and picking the highland and the drier streets, made it back to Betty's ass. All right, let's keep going here. Okay, so now, so he's just talking about life at the post office. One five a.m., I walked in and sat down to wait behind the stone. He looked a bit slumped under that red shirt. Moda was next to me. He told me, they picked up Matthew yesterday. Picked him up? Yeah, for stealing the mails. He'd been opening letters for the Nekalela Temple and taking money out. After 15 years on the job, how'd they get him? How'd they find out? The old ladies. The old ladies had been sending in letters to Nekalela filled with money, and they weren't getting any thank you notes or response. Nekalela told the P.O., and the P.O. put the eye on Matthew. They found him opening letters down at the soak box, taking money out. No shit? No shit. They caught him in cold daylight. I leaned back. Nekalela had built this large temple and painted it a sickening green. I guess it reminded him of money. And he had an office staff of 30 or 40 people who did nothing but open envelopes, take out checks and money, record the amount, the sender, date received, and so on. Others were busy mailing out books and pamphlets written by Nekalela, and his photo was on the wall. A large one of N in priestly robes and beard, and a painting of N, very large too, looked over the office, watching. So they catch this guy stealing, uh, and he gets fired. Uh, let's see. Let's skip ahead here. Okay, so, yeah, so they get into that. They, they, it's, it's a funny story of this guy getting caught stealing. Uh, chapter 14. Again, I was on a new route. The stone always put me on hard routes. But now and then, due to circumstances of things, he was forced to place me on one less murderous Route 511 was peeling off quite nicely, and there I was thinking about lunch again. The lunch that never came. It was an average residential neighborhood. No apartment houses, just house after house with well-kept lawns. But it was a new route, and I walked along, wondering where the trap was. Even the weather was nice. By God, I thought, I'm going to make it. Lunch and back on schedule. Life, at last, was bearable. These people didn't even own dogs. Nobody stood outside waiting for their mail. I hadn't heard a human voice in hours. Perhaps I had reached my postal maturity, whatever that was. I strolled along, efficient, almost dedicated. I remembered one of those older carriers pointing to his heart and telling me, Chinoski, someday it will get to you. It will get you right here. Heart attack? Dedication to service. You'll see. You'll be proud of it balls. But the man had been sincere. I thought about him as I walked along. Then I had a registered letter with return attached. I walked up and rang the doorbell. A little window opened the door. I couldn't see the face. Registered letter. Stand back, said a woman's voice. Stand back so I could see your face. Well, there it was, I thought. Another nut. Look, lady, you don't have to see my face. I'll just leave this slip in the mailbox and you can pick your letter up at the station. Bring proper identification. I put the slip in the mailbox and began to walk off the porch. The door opened and she ran out. She had on one of those see-through negligees and no brassiere, just dark blue panties. Her hair was uncombed and stuck out as if it were trying to run away from her. There seemed to be some type of cream on her face, most of it under her eyes. The skin on her body was white as if it never saw sunlight, and her face had an unhealthy look. Her mouth was hung open. She had a touch of lipstick, and she was built all the way. 
I caught all this as she rushed at me. I was sliding the registered letter back into the pouch. She screamed, give me my letter. I said, lady, you'll have to. She grabbed the letter and ran the door, opened it and ran. God damn, you couldn't come back without either the registered letter or a signature. You had to sign in and out with the things. Hey, I went after her and jammed my foot into the door just on in on time. Hey, God damn you. Go away. Go away. You're an evil man. Look, lady, try to understand. You've got to sign for that letter. I can't let you have it that way. You are robbing the United States mails. Go away, evil man. Basically, this crazy lady. Uh, I'm not going to get into the rest of that scene. It gets it gets pretty raunchy. Uh, but, uh, yeah, these are the... These are the uh, adventures of the life of a postal worker. Um, all right, next section. Chapter 17, page 47. After three years, I made regular. That meant holiday pay. Subs didn't get paid for holidays. So he'd been starting out d- thus far as a substitute mail carrier, so he got all the worst routes. Okay, so uh, so that meant holiday pay and a 40-hour week with two days off. The Stone was also forced to assign me as relief man to five different routes. That's all I had to carry, five different routes. In time, I would learn the case as well, plus the shortcuts and traps on each route. Each day would be easier. I could begin to cultivate that comfortable look. Somehow, I was not too happy. I was not a man to deliberately seek pain, The job was still difficult enough, but somehow it lacked the old glamour of my sub days, the not knowing what the hell was going to happen next. A few of the regulars came around and shook my hand. Congratulations, they said. Yeah, I said. Congratulations for what? I hadn't done anything. Now I was a member of the club. I was one of the boys. I could be there for years, eventually bid for my own route, get Christmas presents from my people, and when I phoned in sick, they would say to some poor bastard sub, Where's the regular man today? You're late. The regular man is never late. So there I was. Then a bulletin came out that no caps or equipment were to be placed on top of the carrier's case. I just want to stop there. So that line, so there I was. That's just such a vintage storytelling line. So there I was. It didn't hurt anything. Uh, So most of the boys put their caps up there. It didn't hurt anything and saved a trip to the locker room. Now, after three years of putting my cap up there, I was ordered not to do so. Well, I was still coming in hungover, and I didn't have things like caps on my mind. So my cap was up there the day after the order came out. The stone came running with his write-up. It said that it was against rules and regulations to have any equipment on top of the case. I put the write-up in my pocket and went on sticking letters. The stone sat swiveled in his chair, watching me. All the other carriers had put their caps on their lockers, except me and the other one, one Marty. And the stone had gone up to Marty and said, Now, Marty, you read the order. Your cap isn't supposed to be on top of the case. Oh, I'm sorry, sir. Habit, you know. Sorry. Marty took his cap off the case and ran upstairs to his locker with it. The next morning, I forgot again. The stone came with his write-up. It said... It said it was against the rules and regulations to have any equipment on top of the case. I put the write-up in my pocket and went on sticking letters. The next morning as I walked in, I could see the stone watching me. He was very deliberate about watching me. He was waiting to see what I would do with the cap. I let him wait a while. Then I took the cap off my head and placed it on top of the case. The stone ran up with his write-up. I didn't read it. I threw it in the wastebasket, left my cap up there, and went on sticking the mail. I could hear the stone at his typewriter. There was anger in the sound of his keys. I wondered how he managed to learn how to type, I thought. He came in again, handed me a second write-up. I looked at him. I don't have to read it. I know what it says. It says that I didn't read the first (laughs) write-up. I love that part. Um, All right, so basically, uh, he's the first half of the book, he's just like telling you like little annoying things about being a post office worker. And... This podcast is a little bit choppier because look, there's just so much in this book that I don't want to give away a lot of these lines because they're just so good. Uh, and it's not fair to the author. They're also a little too raunchy. So um, I got I to gotta pick and choose. So 
Uh, yeah, page fifty. There's just some. There's some awesome lines in here. It's it's totally a guy's book. Okay, so uh, the book also kind of traces his love life, like these relationships he's having. So I, I don't know if it's loosely based off of his uh, his real life, like the author's real life. I can only assume that's the case because that's what most authors do. The next thing I knew, I had a young girl from Texas on my lap. I won't go into details of how I met her. Anyway, there it was. She was 23, I was 36. She had long blonde hair, and it was good solid meat. I didn't know, at the time, that she had a lot of, that she had plenty of money. She didn't drink, but I did. We laughed a lot at first, and went to the racetrack together. She was a looker, and every time I got back to my seat, there would be some jerk-off sliding closer and closer to her. There were dozens of them. They just kept moving closer and closer. Joyce would either sit, and I had to handle all of them in one of two ways. Either take Joyce and move off, or tell the guy, Look, buddy, this one's taken. Now move off. But fighting the wolves and horses at the same time was too much for me. I kept losing. A pro goes to the track alone. I know that. But I thought maybe I was exceptional. I found out that I wasn't exceptional at all. I could lose my money as fast as anybody. Then Joyce demanded that we get married. How the hell, I thought. I'm cooked anyhow. I drove, here, I, I drove her to Vegas for a cheap wedding, then drove her right back. I sold the car for $10, and the next thing I knew, we were on a bus to Texas. And when we landed, I had 75 cents in my pocket. It was a very small town. The population, I believe, was under 2,000. The town had been picked by experts in a national article as the last town in the USA any enemy would attack with an atomic bomb. I could see why. All of this time, all this time without knowing it, I was working my way back to the post office. That mother. Joyce had a little house in town. We laid around and screwed and ate. She fed me well, fattened me up, and weakened me at the same time. She couldn't get enough. Joyce, my wife, was a nymph. I took I took little walks through the town alone to get away from her, teeth marks all over my chest, neck, and shoulders, and somewhere else that worried me more, and I was quite painful. She was eating me alive. <laughs> oh, it's brilliant. I, I'm going to skip the rest of this description. But yeah, so he meets this crazy rich girl from Texas, and uh, yeah, I think I wrote a note in the margin here, uh, LOL, avoid these women. So yeah, that's... That's, uh, I think everybody, uh, I don't know, maybe most of the people on this uh, email list have experienced something similar. Uh, page, th- or chapter, or, let's see, page 58. Her father really hated me. He thought I was after his money. I didn't want his goddamn money. I didn't even want his goddamn precious daughter. The only time I ever saw him was when he walked into the bedroom one morning at 10. Joyce and I were in bed resting up. Luckily, we had just finished. I peered, at, I peered at him from under the edge of the cover. Then I couldn't help myself. I smiled at him and gave him a big wink. He ran out of the house growling and cursing. If I could be removed, he'd certainly see to it. Gramps was cooler. We'd go to his place and I'd drink whiskeys with him and listen to his cowboy records. His old lady was simply indifferent. She neither liked nor hated me. She fought with Joyce a lot and I sided with the old lady once or twice. That kind of won her over. But Gramps was cool. I think he was in on the conspiracy. We had been at this cafe and eaten, with everybody fawning over us and staring, and there was Gramps, Grandma, Joyce, and I. Then we got in the car and drove along. Ever seen any buffalo, Hank? Gramps asked me. No, Wally, I haven't. I called him Wally, old whiskey buddies. Like hell. We have them here. I thought they were just about extinct. Oh no, we've got dozens of them. I don't believe it. Show him Daddy Wally, said Joyce. Silly bitch. She called him Daddy Wally. He wasn't her daddy. All right. We drove on away until we came to this empty fenced-in field. The ground sloped. And you couldn't see the other end of the field. It was miles long and wide. There was nothing but short green grass. I don't see any buffalo, I said. The wind's right, said Wally. Just climb in there and walk a ways. You've got to walk a ways to see them. 
There was nothing in the field. They thought they were being very funny, conning a city slicker. I climbed the fence and walked on, on in. Well, where are the buffalo? I called back. They're there. Go on in. Oh, hell, they were going to play the old driveway joke. Damn farmers. They'd wait until I got in there, then driving off laughing. Well, let them. I could walk back. It'd give me a rest from Joyce. I walked very quickly into the field, waiting for them to drive off. I didn't hear them leaving. I walked further in, then turned, cupped my hands, and yelled back at them. Well, where's the buffalo? My answer came from behind me. I could hear their feet on the ground. There were three of them, big ones, just like in the movies, and they were running. They were coming fast. One had a bit of a lead on the others. There was little doubt who they were heading for. Oh, shit, I said. I turned and began running. That fence looked like a long way away. It looked impossible. I couldn't spare the time to look back. That might have made a difference. That might make the difference. I was flying, wide-eyed. I really moved, but they gained steadily. I could feel the ground shaking around me as they beat up the earth getting right down, down on me. I could hear them slobbering. I could hear them breathing. With the last of my strength, I dug in and leaped the fence. I didn't climb it. I sailed over it, and I landed on my back in a ditch with one of those things poking his head over the fence and looking down at me. <laughs> in the car, they were all laughing. They thought it was the funniest thing they had ever seen. Joyce was laughing louder than any of them. The stupid beast circled off, then loped off. I got out of the ditch and climbed in the car. I've seen the buffalo. Now let's go catch a drink. They laughed all the way in. Uh, yeah, that was a crazy section of the book. Uh, okay, next, page 62. So Gramps, <clears throat> all right, so basically, so he moves to Texas. Uh, he has a young wife. Uh, she's like 10 years younger than him. And and he's married into like this really rich family. But uh, they both, uh, more so the daughter, wants to prove to her family that that he's not just marrying her for money and that they can make it on their own. So, so Gramps wrote Joyce a big check, and there we were. We rented a little house up on the hill, and Joyce got this stupid moralistic thing. We both ought to get jobs, Joyce said, to prove to them that you're not after their money, to prove to them that we are self-sufficient. Baby, that's grammar school. Any damn fool can beg up some kind of job. It takes a wise man to make it without working. Out here we call it hustling. I like to be a good hustler. She didn't want it. Then I explained that a man could find a job, couldn't find a job unless he had a car to drive around. Joyce got on the phone and Gramps sent the money on in. Next thing I knew, I was sitting in a new Plymouth. She sent me out on the streets dressed in a fine new suit, $40 shoes, and I thought, what the hell, I'll try to stretch it out. Shipping clerk, that's where I was. When you didn't know how to do anything, that's what you became. A shipping clerk, receiving clerk, stock boy. I checked two ads, went to two places, and both of, them, both of the places hired me. The first place smelled like work, so I took the second. Love that line. Uh, let's skip it. Oh, yeah. So, uh, all right. So he's working in the stock house, and the truckers would come in. So the truck drivers would come in. Where's Chinaski? He's down at the coffee shop. They'd come down there, have a coffee, and then we'd walk up the alley and do our bit. Take a few cartons off the truck or throw them on. Something about a bill of lading. They wouldn't fire me. Even the salesmen liked me. They were robbing the boss. <laughs> they were robbing the boss out the back door, but I didn't say anything. That was their little game. It didn't interest me. I wasn't a petty thief. I wanted the whole world or nothing. All right. Uh, okay. So yeah. So then he gets into his life uh, with this uh, his life with this girl, and they're living in this house with. A bunch of flies in the backyard, and um, okay, let me just skip ahead. Uh, so yeah, so he's describing. So he talks a little bit about life at the house, and then life back at the office. So I'll skip ahead back to the office. There was a gang of us down there, 150 or 200. There were tedious papers to fill out. Then we all stood up and faced the flag. The guy who swore us in was the same guy who had sworn me in before. After swearing us in, the guy told us, All right now, you've got a good job. 
Keep your nose clean and you've got the security the rest of your life. Security. You could get security in jail. Three squares and no rent to pay. No utilities, no income tax, no child support, no license plate fees, no traffic tickets, no drunk driving raps, no losses at the racetrack, free medical attention, comradeship with those with similar interests, church, round eye, free burial. Nearly 12 years later, out of those 150 or 200, 200, there would only be two of us left. Just like some guys can't taxi or pimp or hustle dope, most guys and gals too can't be postal clerks. And I don't blame them. As the years went by, I saw them continue to march in, march in in their squads of 150 or 200, and two, three, four remain out of each group, just enough to replace those who were retiring. All right. Let's skip ahead. Okay, <laughs> yeah, so this is another funny scene. Um, so... <clears throat> So this is life with Joyce, his uh, young wife from Texas. So I guess now they're back in L.A. and uh, he's been working. Uh, he, he's been working as a postal clerk. He obviously hates the job, and uh, and she is uh, she's actually working as a cop. I don't know if I've covered that, but she she's basically working as a yeah. Okay, that that's the next section I'll read. So. Um, yeah, there's this funny thing, like where geraniums fall from, uh, like the shelving of the bedroom, uh, while they're going at it, it's, it's, it's freaking hilarious. Uh, and they get a dog. So, okay. So he, they get a job named Picasso. I'll just skip ahead. I didn't say I like him, but he's subnormal. He has an IQ of about 12. You've gone out and gotten us an idiot of a dog. How can I tell? How can you tell? I can tell just by looking at him. Just then, Picasso started to piss. Picasso, Picasso was full of piss. It ran in long yellow fat rivulets along the kitchen floor. Then Picasso finished, ran, and looked at it. I picked him up. Mop it up. So Picasso was just one more problem. I'd awaken after a 12-hour night with Joyce strumming me under the geraniums, and I'd say, where's Picasso? Oh, goddamn Picasso, she'd say. I'd get out of bed, naked, with this big thing in front of me. Look, you've left him out in the yard again. I told you not to leave him out in the yard in daytime. Then I'd go out into the backyard, naked, too tired to dress. It was fairly well sheltered, and there would be a poor Picasso overrun with 500 flies, flies crawling all over him in circles. I'd run out with the thing going down then and then curse those flies. They were in his eyes, under the hair, in his ears, on his privates, in his mouth, everywhere. And he'd just sit there and smile at me, laugh at me, while the flies ate him up. Maybe he knew more than any of us. I picked him up and carried him into the house. The little dog laughed to see such sport, and the dish ran away with the spoon. God damn it, Joyce, I've told you and told you. Well, you were the one who housebroke him. He's got to go out there to crap. Yes, but when he's through, bring him in. He doesn't have the sense to come in for himself. And wash away the crap when he's finished. You're creating a fly paradise out there. All right, I'll skip, uh, I'll skip ahead. More, uh, more raunchy stuff. Uh, okay, Hank and the art museum section. So he goes on to talk about this training class he has to take at the post office. And I just want to skip ahead to this scene. Okay, page 80. Joyce found a job with the county, the county police department of all things. I was living with a cop, but at least it was during the day, which gave me a little rest from those fondling hands, except Joyce bought two parakeets, and the damn things didn't talk. They just made these sounds all day. Joyce and I met over breakfast and dinner. It was all very brisk. Nice that way. Though she still managed how to, <laughs> she still managed to rape me now and then. It beat the other except the parakeets. Look, baby, what is it? All right, I've gotten used to the geraniums and the flies and Picasso, but you've got to realize that I am working 12 hours a night and studying a scheme on the side, and you molest my re remaining energy. Molest? All right, I'm not saying it right. I'm sorry. What do you mean molest? I said, forget it. 
Now look, it's the parakeets. So now it's the parakeets. Are they molesting you too? Yes, they are. Who's on top? Look, don't get funny. Don't get dirty. I'm trying to tell you something. Now you're trying to tell me how to get. All right, shit, you're the one with the money. Are you going to let me talk or not? Answer me yes or no. All right, little baby, yes. All right, little baby says this. Mama, mama, those <laughs> those fucking parakeets are driving me nuts. All right, tell mama how the parakeets are driving you nuts. Well, it's like this, mama. The other, <laughs> the things chatter all day. They never stop. And I keep waiting for them to say something, but they never say anything. And, and I can't sleep all day from listening to the idiots. All right, little baby, if they keep you awake, put them out. Put them out, mama? Yes, put them out. All right, mama. She gave me a kiss and then wiggled down the stairway on her way to her cop job. I got in bed and tried to sleep. How they chattered. Every muscle in my body ached. If I lay on this side, if I lay on that side, if I lay on my back, I ached. I found some of the easiest way was on my, the easiest way was on my stomach, but that grew tiresome. It took a good two or three minutes to get from one position to another. I tossed and turned, cursing, screaming a little, and laughing a little, too, at the ridiculousness of it. On they chattered. They got to me. What did they know of pain in their little cage? Eggheads yakking, just feathers, brains the size of a pinhead. I managed to get out of bed, go into the kitchen, fill a cup with water, and then I walked up to the cage and threw water all over them. Motherfuckers, I cursed them. They looked out at me balefully from under the wet feathers. They were silent, nothing like the old water treatment. I had borrowed a page from the head shrinkers to the green one with the yellow breast reaching down a bit and bit himself on the chest. Then he looked up and started chattering to the red one with the green breast, and then they were going again. Okay, skip ahead. Bottom line, he, he lets the birds out. Uh, and they just fly away. So next page. I had a good sleep for the first time in weeks. <laughs> I even forgot to set the alarm. I was riding a white horse down Broadway, New York City. I had been elected mayor. I had this big heart on. And then I knew somebody threw a hunk of mud at me. And joy shook me. What happened to the birds? Damn the birds. I'm the mayor of New York. I asked you about the birds. All I see is an empty cage. Birds. Birds. What birds? Wake up, damn you. Hard day at the office, dear? You seem snappish. Where are the birds? You said to put them out if they kept me awake. I meant to put them on the back porch or outside, you fool. Fool? Yes, you fool. Do you mean to say you let those birds out of the cage? You mean you really let them out of the cage? Well, all I can say is they're not locked up in the bathroom. They're not in the cupboard. They'll starve out there. They can catch worms, eat berries, all that stuff. They can't. They can't. They don't know how. They'll die. Let them learn or let them die, I said. And then I turned slowly over and went back to sleep. Vaguely, I could hear her cooking dinner, dropping lids and spoons on the floor, cursing. But Picasso was on the bed with me. Picasso was safe from her sharp no shoes. I put my hand out and he licked it, and then I slept. That is, I did for a while. Next thing I knew, I was being fondled. <laughs> I looked up and she was staring into my eyes like a mad woman. <laughs> uh, she was naked, her breasts dangling in my eyes, her hair tickling my nostrils. I thought of her millions, I flipped her back. And... Okay, so, yeah, so... This is like one of the most entertaining books I've ever read. It's obviously a guy's a, a guy's type of book. It's a, almost every chapter ends with some sort of raunchy end. Um, and then as the book goes on, he is just telling a story of how he reconnects with one of his ex-girlfriends. It's basically him weaving in and out. It's, it's almost like a sitcom. It's like back-to-back -back episodes of a sitcom. Him working at the post office telling all these weird stories of interacting with his boss, uh, being on the postal route and dealing with uh, just random crazy customers, and then interweaving stories from his love life. So he eventually gets divorced from Joyce. They have like some dramatic breakup, and she hooks up with some guy at the post office. <laughs> she, re uh, or she tries to, and then uh, this is a little weird sub-story about that. And then... 
And then there's a like in the last half of the book, it starts getting a little bit depressed. He he, he gets back together with uh, with Betty, like his girlfriend at the beginning of the book, and by now she's like older. Uh, and she's just a raging alcoholic, and she has like health problems. And I, there's a scene where she she eventually winds up in the hospital with I don't know. The landlord had found her with blood on the sheet, so maybe like some sort of GI bleed or something. So I won't tell you what happens to Betty at the end of this, but it's not it's not pleasant. And so the book is very raw, and I've given you a little teaser of of what goes on in this book. Why should you read this book? I don't know, for some good laughs to get out of the 24-hour news cycle. That's the theme of this podcast. So I'm a fan of rediscovering old books because uh, reading is a form of forced meditation. It's good for your brain. It's good to combat screen addictions. Physical hard copy books. It's the way to go. So I hope you enjoyed this little um, book report slash uh, read aloud episode of Three Deeper Cuts podcasts. Again, the name of the book is Post Office. That's Post Office by Charles Bukowski. Uh, you can pick it up anywhere uh, online or in person. And it's part of a series. Now I got to read the other ones. Uh, I think the one before that is called Ham on Rye. <coughs> and the one after that is called Women. I'm just assuming that like, most of those are going to be uh, uh, more on the raunchy side, but that's okay. You know, we have a diverse range of things we cover on this podcast. Being the lifestyle magazine for the practicing surgical pathologist, bringing you high signal content fueled by 10 10% buffered neutral formalin. I hope you enjoyed listening. If you like this content, subscribe to the newsletter at 3deepercuts.substack.com. And now... You can find full episodes on x.com. Just look at the handle at 3 Deeper Cuts. Check us out on Apple Podcast and on Spotify and YouTube. So have an excellent rest of your day, professors. I'm your host, Chuck G. Until next time, be well and stay curious. Bye-bye.